Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Let's, uh, let's pray together before the message. Heavenly Father, we are here because you are so glorious, and you have called us to be your children, to follow you, to be adopted sons and daughters of, of your kingdom, and, and we are so grateful for what you have done. I pray for John and Sharon, who just shared that they're going on sabbatical, and I pray that that would be a, a time of rest and uh, a place where they are infused with your presence, um, just a, a renewal of, um, of knowledge of who you are and, and what you've accomplished in their life. And we pray for Mike as well, who uh, has served so faithfully. We ask that you would, in his sabbatical time, yeah, just meet him in that place of kind of some weariness and, and some tiredness, and that you would renew him, uh, give him your strength. And so we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to start this morning by telling you a story about a man named John Payton. John Payton was a Scottish missionary who worked um, on the island of Anawa in the Vanuatu Islands. That's an island chain. At, at that time, in the late 1800s, it was, they were all cannibals. That was the, the religion that was practiced by those natives. It was a very dangerous territory to be serving in. Shortly before John went there, uh, four missionaries had gone ahead of him, and all four of them were killed and eaten in a matter of hours. So this wasn't a safe place to be doing any sort of missionary work. And the religion uh, practice there really centered around death and, and even some depravity. Peyton wrote in his journal that the worship of the, the natives there were, was, um, was one based on fear, and, and death and destruction. He said, as far as I could ever learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or of grace. And Peyton admitted that at times his heart would waver as he wondered, you know, whether these people would, would be brought to a place of believing in Jesus. And I'm sure he had moments where he worried for his own safety. But he pressed on in this island chain, and he ended up building orphanages where children were trained in skills and were given an education. He built medical centers where sick and dying uh, people were given medicines and cared for. He had church services and, and led many to the Lord on the island of Anawa. In the next 15 years, John and his wife, Margaret Payton, actually saw the entire small island of Anawa turn to faith in Christ, which is incredible. It wasn't on the other island chains, but Anawa in particular seemed to be the island that really, really gravitated to the message of the gospel. Years later, Peyton wrote in his journal, I claimed Anawa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. Now, Anawa is a very tiny island. I think it's about 350 in population in, in today's, uh, like right now in modern day, but still about 85% of the island today identifies as Christian, and that can trace all the way back to John and Margaret Peyton, who spent many years there uh, building that. Now, before John went over to the island of Anawa, he had to face a lot of criticism from the people he served in ministry with in Scotland. Many of them were just simply afraid that he was going to die in a matter of moments like the missionaries before him. They said, you're just going to die. Why would you waste your life? When John actually announced his intention to his church board that he was going to go to Anawa, an elder in the church, Mr. Dixon was very angry and he said, well, you'll just be eaten by the cannibals. To this, uh, Mr. Payton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in your years now, and you will soon be laid in the grave to be eaten by worms. 
just putting it bluntly. He says, I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection, my body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. It's a good response. A little blunt, a little on the nose, but... Another kind of criticism that John was receiving before he left for the mission field was that he'd be leaving what he already had, which was a very fruitful ministry. Peyton had already served for 10 years as sort of a city missionary to the urban center of Glasgow among the lower income people with with tremendous success. And and he was serving the poor and he was feeding them and, and hundreds of unchurched people were coming in to attend his classes and his church services and people were being baptized and coming to Saving Faith. And so he had a lot of criticism and pushback from his fellow pastors who said, why would you leave this place? You're already doing good work. And so he wrote in his journal, the opposition was so strong from nearly all, even some of my warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was really carrying out the divine will or just some headstrong wish of my own. This caused me much anxiety and drove me close to God in prayer. Despite the danger and the criticisms John followed the prompting of Jesus and he went to minister into one of the most hostile places on earth. He brought the good news of Jesus to a people who practiced cannibalism and worshipped evil spirits and from Peyton's accounts were vicious towards one another and their women and their children. So John Peyton didn't waste his life. He sacrificed his life to serve his king. King Jesus, and he made an eternal impact. I mean, think of, you know, we're now 200 years from, or about 100 and some years from when he went, and I mean, this entire island now identifies 85% as Christian. It wasn't a waste of his time or his talent or his life. It was done in service to his king. And the lesson for us is that a life spent in selfless devotion to Jesus isn't a wasted life. It's an abundant life. It might cost us something, but ultimately it's an abundant life. We're looking today at the story of Mary worshiping Jesus with this extravagant, some would say a waste, of an incredibly expensive perfume that she pours out on his feet. Here's the text. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's probably multiple reasons as to why Mary chose to lavish Jesus with this extravagant worship. However, I think one of the things that we don't want to forget when we read this encounter story is that Jesus has had interactions with Mary and Martha before. It would seem from the account of Scripture that Jesus has a pretty close friendship with this family. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, he seems to be pretty consistently interacting with them. And he seems to be pretty good friends with them. Let's just go through some of the, those earlier encounters to kind of get an idea as to where this lavish worship and devotion of Jesus comes from. So one of the first interactions we have recorded in Scripture that Jesus has with Mary and Martha, some of you will know this, it's that famous text where Jesus visits their home and Martha is busy getting the food ready and serving the men while Mary is simply sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is upset by this. He expects Jesus to agree with her that Mary's place is in the kitchen getting things ready. So Martha in this encounter says to Jesus, it says, Martha was distracted by her many tasks and she came up and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. 
The interesting thing is that in the way the Greek phrasing of this question is worded, uh, Martha's not asking like, do you or don't you care? The way she's asking it is like, there's an assumed correct answer. Of course this is wrong. Of course, Jesus, you know that Mary should be with me in the kitchen. You know this is inappropriate. It's like, you know, if you phrase the question to your children before they go to someone's house and you're like, are you going to be on your best behavior? That's not really a question, right? That, there's an assumed correct answer and the answer is yes, right? And that's, that's exactly what Martha is doing here. She's assuming the Lord is, knows what the correct answer is. Of course, it's inappropriate. She should be helping you. So imagine Martha's shock when Jesus disagrees with her. So let's dig a little deeper into that dynamic. Because Martha assumes that Mary should help serve, it's not only because Martha's working hard and needs help. That's part of it. She's working hard and she needs some help. That's a fair request, but that's probably not the entire reason. It's about cultural expectations and what is appropriate for females in that culture to do or not do. Luke records that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to what he said. And so when we read that in modern language, we think, ah, yes, Mary the worshiper, sitting and worshiping at the feet of Jesus. That's actually probably there, not totally what's happening. In the first century world of Jewish teachers and rabbis, if you were to sit at someone's feet, it meant you were their disciple. It meant you were learning from them. You were being taught and instructed by them. That's what it meant to sit at someone's feet. It was you were a disciple. So Mary, by sitting at Jesus' feet, is not just sitting in worship of Jesus. I'm sure there's worship there. But what she's doing is she's assuming the place of a disciple. She's sitting with the men, hearing what Jesus is saying. Being taught like a man would be. It's highly inappropriate for that culture. And so that's why Martha, when she's asking this question, she just expects Jesus to agree with her. Not only is Mary not helping and I'm working hard, but Mary's sitting with the men. The obvious thing is that she can't be there. It's the man's time to learn. She can't sit at the feet of a rabbi. That's not done. But Jesus not only permits Mary to receive his teaching, just same as his male followers, he defends Mary's position at his feet to her sister Martha. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and will not be taken away from her. <clears throat> what is better? It's to learn. It's to be a disciple, to, to sit at the feet of Jesus, and, and not just in worship, but in learning. And so it seems to me that at least some of Mary's devotion and worship of Jesus is coming from this encounter she had where Jesus welcomes her into his discipleship and elevates and celebrates her decision to follow him, to learn from him, and to obey him. The other encounter that Mary has with Jesus before this act that we read about of her act of pouring out the perfume on Jesus is when Jesus raises her brother Lazarus from the dead. Not only has Jesus shown Mary that he is a wise and good rabbi and teacher, he raised her brother from the dead. He's God. Who else but the Son of God can raise a man from the dead? And so, I mean, now Mary's putting this together. He is the most wise man I have ever heard. He is a man who has elevated me to a position of discipleship, and he raised my brother from the dead. That type of encounter is going to change the way you approach Jesus. And I think that's where this, this act of kind of extravagant devotion comes from. These encounters with Jesus give Mary insight and clarity into what is of real value, what is of real worth in this life. 
The premise being this, that when we encounter Jesus, it gives us perspective on what this life is all about and what is truly important. John Payton can go to an island chain of cannibals because he understands what is truly important. His resurrection body is going to be the same, whether he's eaten by worms in the grave or eaten by cannibals, it doesn't matter. Encounters with Jesus give us perspective on what life is all about and what is truly important. <clears throat> so let's, let's dig into kind of this text today where, where Mary pours out this expensive perfume. 12 ounces of nard, a very expensive Expensive spice. We find out later from Judas that this perfume was worth at least a year's wages. So can you imagine taking a year's worth of your wages and it's gone? In a, in a moment, in, in seconds, a year's worth of your wages is gone. That's a lot of money. It's also likely that, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were not wealthy. There's a good chance that this was not a wealthy family for whom a, a jar of, of this, you know, a year's worth of wages was nothing. I, I've probably, from what we're reading in the text, it seems like they're, they're not that well off. You know, one of the things we see is that Martha was so busy preparing the meal in that first encounter that she needs Mary to help her. That indicates there's not a lot of servants around, there's not a lot of household st staff around. That means they're probably just a normal, everyday family. This jar of perfume was very likely one of the only valuable things in the household. It was probably a jar of perfume to be Mary's dowry for a wedding. It might have been the only truly valuable thing Mary owned, and here she breaks this thing open and pours it all out in worship of Jesus. And I mean, even if they were well off, that's an incredibly extravagant gift. A year's worth of wages poured out in selfless devotion. But what we learn from this is what selfless devotion to Jesus looks like. It teaches us something about what it means to deny ourselves. As Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so the first point is this, is that selfless devotion is costly. If we're going to truly surrender our lives and be selflessly devoted to Jesus, it will cost us certain things. Now these things aren't really all that important in light of eternal and abundant life but the world and our fleshly desires seem to think that these things are important, right? This is one of those obstacles, these hurdles we have to get over as disciples of Jesus is that we want to be selflessly devoted, but our fleshly desire, the culture around us says, but don't go crazy with it. You know, don't go nuts with it. Go to church when you can, you know, go to some Bible studies when you can, but don't, don't go to an island of cannibals, but to be selflessly devoted to Jesus means that your encounters with Jesus teach you what life is really all about. And if we really believe in an eternal life, then it changes the way you live this life. So though sacrificing will ultimately be beneficial to our spiritual health, we often struggle with that type of idea because of our own, you know, kind of flesh desires and the ways of the world, our culture, which says, hey... Don't go crazy with it. The ways of God, like if you go too extreme with it, it's, it's too much. You know, keep it here, you know. Don't, don't go nuts. But to be a disciple of Jesus is to deny yourself, to take up your cross. And what does it mean to deny yourself? I mean, I just think of the power of those words and like, what does it look like to deny myself to serve Jesus? It's, and and it's, what I want to get across to you is it's not a burdensome thing. Because abundant life is found in Jesus. It's once you've encountered Jesus and he's made you a new creation, you go, my life is entirely different. You want to share that with other people. 
And you're okay sacrificing to do that because you go, I've found what life is all about. So one of the things we need to talk about here is that we need to be willing to sacrifice financially. We already know that the perfume that Mary poured out was expensive, right? A year's worth of wages poured out in one shot. And one of the shocking things of the disciples is just the money aspect of it. She gave just a ridiculous amount. You know, I, I kind of think that if Mary had taken that jar and if she had dabbed her finger in it and anointed Jesus' forehead with her finger, everyone would have said, ah, yes, good, good worship. If she'd taken a little ounce and poured a little ounce, they would have said, oh, yes, appropriate worship. But the fact that she takes 12 ounces, I mean, think how much that would have smelled, right? I mean, it's just like everyone's like, oh, my goodness, it's, you wasted a bunch of money and now it smells like it's overpowering. It's too much is what they're thinking. It's too much. It's extravagant. It's over the top. But selfless devotion can cost you financially, and it's when you realize what's truly important. And so really the question is, do I treasure Jesus more than my stuff? Randy Elkhorn writes this. He says, I'm convinced that of all the spiritual gifts, giving is the one least thought about and talked about in the Western church and perhaps in the world. It's increasingly common for Christians in accountability or small groups to ask one another really tough questions like, have you been spending time in the word? Or are you living in sexual purity? Or have you been sharing your faith? He says this though, he says, but how often do we ask, are you winning the battle against materialism? Or how are you doing with your giving? See, this is a discipleship question. How we use our money is a discipleship question. It shows where your, your heart's desire lies. He says, when it comes to giving, a lot of churches operate under a don't ask, don't tell policy. We lack communication, accountability, or modeling. It's like we have an unspoken agreement. I won't talk about it if you won't, so we can continue living as we are. See, one of the things in this church I've noticed is that there's always opportunity to find out how to give, and we have the building fund that you can give to. But there's this next step to it, which is saying how you use your money is a question of discipleship. Stewardship of resources is a discipleship question. It's, it's a good metric to see, does materialism have a hold on your heart? Are there idols in your heart that are taking the place of Jesus? Because how we spend our money and our possessions concern God greatly. Jesus talked a lot about money. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, one out of 10 verses, that's 288 in all, deal directly with money. The Bible has 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. It's kind of that unwritten rule that we don't really talk about it. Like we'll offend people if we talk about giving. But Mary demonstrates that if we want to be truly and selflessly devoted to Christ, we need to be willing to give generously to the things that the Lord has called us to give to. Sometimes that's a financial giving. Sometimes that's a financial commitment or a sacrifice financially. I think this is such a timely word because our culture is, is a materialistic culture. If there is a God that our culture worships, it's the God of materialism. Or let's call it mammon. We worship the God mammon. If we want to break the idol worship of mammon, where we give our money to and how we use our resources is going to be a key discipleship question. So the question becomes for us, and I mean, man, every time, every time I think about this, I am, I am convicted in my own heart. Do we value Jesus more than money, possessions? Or do we yearn for more stuff, more wealth? Do we, do we lust after the things that wealth can give us? Do we secretly believe that we would be happier and more content if we only had more wealth? I think about Western Christians and I go, do you know how fortunate we are? 
There's Christians around the world who would never dream of having some of the things that we have. It's not even a reality for them. It's not even a dream they could have because they don't even know that they could have the types of things that we have. And we can tell that we're worshiping at the idol of mammon if we kind of believe that just having more things or more money in the bank or another luxury vacation will bring us happiness. Paul tells Timothy, people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. The question to ask yourself is, when you look at where your money goes, does it demonstrate generosity to the things God would have you be generous towards? Is your money used as a form of worship? Because for Mary, one of the only valuable things she owns is poured out in worship of her Savior. And so that's just, it's, again, I'm not trying to say you need to do this or that. I'm asking, can you ask the Holy Spirit to, to direct the way you use the resources God has given you so that you can grow in your discipleship? And would people know you're a devoted follower of Jesus if they saw your monthly expenses? There was a, a famous admiral in Britain one time, and people loved him, so they wrote a bunch of biographies on him. And then one guy said, I'm going to write another biography on this admiral. And people said, why? There's like 13 already out there. What do you have that other people don't? He said, I've got access to his bank records. Because that's going to tell you what he truly values. It's just a question to ask ourselves. It's a discipleship question. Let's move on to the next thing I think we see in Mary. Selfless devotion will cost you your pride. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil, but she doesn't stop there. And she doesn't stoop down. I mean, there's a lot, of, like 12 ounces, right? Like it's dripping, right? It's, it's, it's all over. She doesn't stop there. She, she, stoops. she doesn't go get a towel and, and wipe up the mess. It says she lets down her hair and she wipes the Lord's feet with her hair. Again, like we have to like understand, like that would be weird now. But like then when you have these like gender roles and these customs where like men and women don't touch, they don't interact, to let your hair down is a sign of being a woman of loose morals. And then to touch a man with your hair is like, what is this? It's weird now. It was even stranger then. But Mary's so caught up in her devotion to Christ, she doesn't stop to consider what others are thinking of her. She is fixated on what she can do to worship her Savior. And she doesn't let these other things interfere with that. It's like David dancing and leaping in joy before the Lord, wearing only his ephod. And his wife is like, oh, David, that's so embarrassing. I can't believe you would do that. But the Lord stood with David. And Mary's action here made the disciples uncomfortable. But Jesus sided with Mary. But you gotta, you gotta give up your pride. To be selflessly devoted to Jesus. Your pride might take a hit when you do what Jesus calls you to do because Jesus might not call you to glamorous and high-profile places. Like John Payton being criticized for leaving his successful ministry to be a missionary to cannibals. People are like, well, I'm sure his pride took a hit in that. Because people were saying, what, what are you, stupid? You have a ministry. Why would you go and do this? Don't you, don't you know any better? You're gonna, what if your wife dies? Don't you care about your family? It's all these questions that I think your pride kind of takes a hit in that. I think of the example of Watchman Nee, who was a church leader and teacher in China back when that persecution was really intense. 
And he, he writes one time of running into an old professor who had taught him law studies in the law school. And the professor took him out for tea and said, now, now look here, Ni. Nee. During your college days, we all thought very much of you. We had very high hopes that you would achieve something great. And do you mean to tell me that this, this being a Christian, this being a pastor, this is what you are? Ni nee writes, I, I confess to you that when I heard, first heard that, my desire was to break down and weep because my career, my health, Everything has, had been gone. It had been taken from me. And, and here my old professor is asking me, are you still in this condition? No success to show, no progress, nothing to show for your life? So at the very next moment, the thought of being able to pour out my life for my Lord filled my soul with glory. I could look up and say, Lord, I praise thee. It is the best course for me. To my professor, it was a total waste to serve the Lord, but the Lord is worthy, worthy of my life, worthy to serve him. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't always love being a pastor. I know that God's called me into this role and into this church and into the church just at large, but I'm not always happy about that call because my pride takes a hit. If I'm being really honest, my pride takes a hit. I know that in a few years when other kids are asking Ryan what his dad does and he says pastor, they probably won't know how to respond to it. They might look down on him for it. I know most men my age think being a pastor is a bit of a useless job. You know, I used to be in Drumheller. All the guys I was with worked like, you know, jobs, right? <laughs> you know, like, they're working hard. And I mean, what do I do? Sit in an office all day and read books. So my pride actually takes a hit. I need to come back to Jesus and say he's worthy of my service. He's, he's worthy of my pride taking a hit. And the question for us is, are you willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world for the sake of Jesus? Are you willing to drop your pride so the gospel could be preached to the world? You know, in our culture, to follow Jesus means you're probably not going to be, you know, at the top of the social standing. To follow Jesus wholeheartedly, to be selflessly devoted to him, to, to be uh, speaking of Jesus whenever the opportunity presents itself, people are not always going to look at you like, they're not always going to look favorably on that. Let's put it that way. And if, if you want to be seen as, you know, kind of a, a well-to-do, put-together person, being selflessly devoted to Jesus is probably going to break that narrative because the world around us goes, that's weird. Don't be weird. But if you want to be faithfully devoted to Jesus, you're going to have to be a little weird. That's just a call. I think about the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and church planter in history, who said this. He said, I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. Why? Because we bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. I love this verse because you know what it tells us? It tells us that even if you do everything right, you might still be treated like garbage. So get used to it. If they slap you on the cheek, turn to them the other. If they present as your enemy, love them well. That is the call of the Christ follower. That's weird. But you represent, you represent your king. That's what this call is. You represent your king in this world. 
You represent the kingdom of heaven. You represent the values of your father. That's the call. So we have to ask ourselves, do I treasure Jesus more than my pride? Or am I more concerned about what others think about me? Because if we're more concerned about what others think about us, we're probably not going to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit when he says, I need you to go here and do this. You're going to go, that's weird. Don't want to do that. And you get the choice. So the lesson for Mary is that selfless devotion, it, it could cost us financially and it will cost us our pride. And interestingly, I think that in our culture, the two greatest idols that exist in our culture are pride and money. And right here, Mary breaks both of those. We know that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and that no one can serve both God and money. And right here, we have an example in Mary of of just dropping it all. That's how you break idols, by the way. As you stop worshiping that idol by rejecting it, getting rid of it, and turning your eyes to Jesus. Mary gives everything she has in worship of Jesus. Her pride is gone. She's let down her hair. She's wiping his feet. The disciples are like, oh my goodness, this is disgusting. Like, this is, this is the weirdest thing. You know, they've seen some weird things with Jesus, but they're not expecting Mary to be doing this. Because what does Mary get from the disciples for this act of devotion? She gets criticism. We move on in the text, and it says, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. But Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this is John's account. But in the other accounts of this dinner, we see it's not only Judas who criticizes Mary, it's all the disciples They criticize her. Judas is the one who starts it off. And and John tells us this is hypocritical because Judas, you know, was a thief anyways. But how crushing is it to have someone pour out their whole life in service and worship and devotion of Jesus only to have fellow believers criticize their actions? The other disciples are like, oh, Mary, stop it. Why would you do that? What a waste. Stephen Cole says, if you give yourself without reserve to Jesus, you will be criticized. And the loudest criticism will come from some church members who will say they're only using common sense in how the Lord's resources are spent. It's like John Payton's critics when he said he was going to Anawa. Or in, I think of a more modern day example, when Francis Chan announced he was leaving his megachurch to go and serve the poor and start a small house church. I think it was in San Francisco. There was an interview where Francis Chan was sitting down with two other megachurch pastors, and he got very, you know, publicly criticized. He said, How, why would you leave? You, you speak to thousands of people. Your books speak to, to millions of people. Why would you leave that to go do a, a, no, a nothing house church in, for nobody? Francis Chan said, well, that's where the Lord's leading me. What else can I do? The interesting thing about that interview is the two other pastors who kind of ganged up on him and kind of attacked him publicly for doing this, both have, were removed from their positions of ministry because of abuse of power. So who, who's following Jesus in that scenario? When your life truly belongs to Jesus, you go where he sends you and you'll do what he empowers you to do. I mean, even, if, even in the face of sometimes criticism. But let me say this, the only way to serve and worship Jesus with selfless devotion is to know him and love him personally. This is, this is where, this is the meat of it, because I'm not telling you to do this as a burden. I'm telling you, when you love Jesus wholeheartedly, these things become natural outpourings of your affection. 
The only way to lay down your pride and lay down your wealth and persist in the face of criticism is to know the voice of Jesus, your shepherd. It's to know you're the one whom Jesus loves. This changes everything. This is the encounter that changes everything when you know you are the one whom Jesus loves. And that's the most important thing. All those other things, don't, they're not as important. It's that knowledge that allows us to serve with selfless devotion. I think Mary, by this point, knew more about the infinite worth of Jesus than the other disciples. Her personal knowledge of Jesus gained by when he let her sit at his feet and learn from him, when she saw him raise her brother from the dead. Like all of these things, encountering Jesus in these transformative places of her life led Mary to this place of selfless and costly devotion. Here's something to, to kind of recognize. Every time we encounter Mary in the gospel, she's at Jesus' feet. First, she's there learning from him. Then, when her brother dies, she's there pouring out her sorrow to him and her, her anger even, her disappointment. And Jesus enters into her sorrow and then raises her brother from the dead. And now here, we have her again at Jesus' feet in worship and in devotion. You're not going to love the Lord like this unless you've spent a lot of time at his feet. John 12.3 says, The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Such an interesting Sunday when Amber talks to us about the aroma of Christ. And that's what we're talking about today. The, think about, again, 12 ounces of this, this perfume. And it's, it's everywhere. And it's, it's in Mary's hair. Okay, So she wipes it with her hair. That means everywhere Mary goes, for a long time most likely, the fragrance goes with her. And to kind of just extrapolate this a little bit and, and kind of make it more personal to us, can people smell the fragrance of Christ on you? You may say, well, what does the fragrance of Christ smell like? I, I can actually tell you what that would smell like. It smells like the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do others sense from the fragrance of your life that you spend much time at Jesus' feet, worshiping him in selfless devotion? Do your relationships in this church smell like the fragrance of Christ? And people who come into this church or who come into contact with us should smell the sweet fragrance of the Savior on us. And this only comes from spending time in worship and devotion at the feet of Jesus. Paul says this. This is Amber uh, read this already, but let's, let's read it again. Thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. As we spend time like Mary at the feet of Jesus in worship, in prayer, in learning, and in obedience, we spread the aroma of the knowledge of him. We are the fragrance of Christ in our world. This aroma of the knowledge of Christ is primarily seen in us as we follow the example of Christ. Paul tells the Ephesians, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So knowing that we are the dearly loved children of God, we can love others sacrificially. And this sacrificial love is a, is a fragrant offering to the world around us. We get to choose how we live. And I would encourage you today to think about what it means to walk in love as Christ loved us, even unto death, and being a sacrificial and fragrant offering. I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'm just going to ask a couple questions and then lead us in prayer. But we can just ask ourselves, are my interactions with the others around me a sweet-smelling offering of love to the Lord? 
Does my time at the feet of Jesus allow the aroma of the knowledge of Christ to be carried everywhere I go? And do you realize that you are the fragrance of Christ in the world around us? You are the sweet-smelling aroma to the world around us. This means everywhere you go, you carry the fragrance of Christ with you. That's your interactions with the grocery store clerk, your interactions with your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your family. You are the aroma of Christ to the world. A sweet-smelling offering of love. Let me... Um, let me pray for us, and I'm actually just going to borrow a written prayer from Pastor Scott Smith as I pray, but join with me. Father, may the fragrance of Jesus and the aroma of grace be increasingly released through us. Keep us in the place of humility, brokenness, and dependence that more of the sweet perfume of the gospel may waft upward before you as an offering of praise and be released through us wherever you send us. Father, free us to love well, wherever we are and with whomever we're with. Some will experience your grace as life-giving. Others will have the opposite response to the good news. But help us to love one and all alike, to not give up on anybody. We truly believe the good news can change anyone, anytime, anywhere. May the only offensive thing about us be the good news of Jesus presented in grace and truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.